The Bible says that God created the world in six days, right? Or does it? Well, yes, it does. But the world says otherwise. Because of this, the question of the age of the earth and how long creation took is going to be one question that you will run into. As you seek to be able to answer the world's questions, this is one that you absolutely must be prepared to answer. And it's not just non-Christians. Christians want to know about this too. And believe me, if your kids haven't asked you about the age of the earth and the creation week, or if you haven't had that discussion with them yet, you soon will. This is Worldview Legacy, the show that helps Christian men become the worldview leaders their families and churches need. My name is Joel Sedeckes, and my mission is to help you, the Christian man who's not a pastor but wants to apply God's teaching in your home and work and local area, to build a legacy where you and your kids and your wife will be able to confidently articulate the answers to the questions the world is asking from the Bible, and you will see Jesus change lives as you share your faith. So, do I believe in a literal six 24-hour day creation? Being able to answer this question will help you articulate what the Bible says and to be prepared to teach it to your family. My goal here is to make sure that the next time that you're asked about what you believe about how old the earth is, or whether or not you believe in a literal creation week, you are well equipped to answer that with confidence. I was asked this in a recent AMA on the chat app Discord. AMA stands for Ask Me Anything. And the gent who asked me this and who owns that server that I was on, he goes by the name Fairy Pengu. I do know his real name, but I don't think I'm supposed to dox him. I'm pretty sure there are like rules against that. But this is someone that I've had theological and philosophical conversations with in real life. And he's not a Christian. He considers himself to be a former Christian, but he is a really thoughtful guy. He mostly has been playing video games on his server, but lately he's been wanting to expand the content and to start including more theological stuff. So he contacted me, and you can check out his server at the link in the show notes. So if this is a discussion or a question that you've wondered about yourself, or if it's something that you've been asked by your own kids, or your coworkers, or your neighbors, or someone online, this episode is for you. And if this is something that you've heard others talking about, and you wanted to jump in, but you were apprehensive to do so, this episode's for you too. And if this is a topic that you are very able to discuss right now, and you just want to hear another perspective, you want to know, what do I think about this? Well, this episode is for you as well. So today, specifically, I will be answering what three views of creation most Christians hold, what's wrong with so-called evolutionary creationism, why is old earth creationism close but no cigar? Why am I a young earth creationist? And what are the negative implications of rejecting a young earth view? Now, if you enjoy this show and the other tools that we put out to help you build a legacy for your family in the Christian worldview, then I want to tell you about something that you can do to help us keep doing it. There is a very important role that you can play, and I'll tell you about that at the end. As we go, I'm going to be popping in with some commentary 
on the things that I said in the AMA to help you get some insight into where I'm coming from and to help you answer this question for yourself. So now, here we go. Do you believe in a 24-hour or a six-day creation, and what implications does that have towards the like Christian faith? Oh, yeah. Okay. So there are three major views that Christians hold. One is just sort of the mainstream Darwinist Lyellian view, which says that the world was created in a big bang. Most evolutionists believe that. Yes, this is the first view, the Darwinist view. When Christians hold this view, they will often call it theistic evolution. More recently, it's also taken on the name evolutionary creationism. I personally think that's somewhat of a misnomer, given that it has much more in common with godless evolutionary views than it does with other creationist views. In my opinion, this title is given to it in order to give it an aura of biblical alignment and agreement that it doesn't really deserve. So what does this first view say? Billions of years ago, maybe 13 billion years ago, and over time, everything coalesced together. And, you know, we're really talking about millions and billions of years before human beings arrive on the scene. If you've been listening to this show for a while, you will know that I am no fan of any form of evolutionary view. That goes for the godless version, the theistic version, any kind of deistic version or otherwise. I just don't think that Darwinism or evolution lines up at all with what scripture teaches. And I'm going to talk about more, more about that in a minute. I don't think it agrees with the scientific or the paleontological data either. Darwinism is, I believe, a primitive theory It's a vestige from a bygone era when we didn't know nearly anything that we now know about biology or fossils or anything. Darwinism is an absolute mess. It makes a mess out of scripture, a mess out of the science. I do not endorse it as a good view for any Christian to hold. And contrary to what some Christians out there believe, I don't think we're doing ourselves any service or any adding to our credibility to act like we endorse Darwinism in any form, or even consider it a viable intellectual option. Now, if you hold to Darwinism, I'm not hating on you. I just think your view is very, very wrong. Now, let's talk about the second view of creation that many Christians hold today, and it is, I believe, a better view. The other view is what's known as an old earth creationist view, Now, this is held by guys like Hugh Ross of Reasons to Believe, and it basically looks at the book of Genesis and looks at each of the seven days and says each of those seven days is an age. And so Genesis is not literally 24 hours, but each of those days is an age. God did something different. He created a new batch of creatures, if you will, on each of those different days. Okay, this second view is one that I actually find more appealing, at least than Darwinism. The main drawback that I have with old earth creationism is that I just don't believe it's what the Bible actually teaches. I'm also skeptical that it actually lines up with the science, although 
The main proponent of this view, Dr. Hugh Ross, does a pretty good job, actually a, a very good job, of explaining why he believes the science does match up with this view. Dr. Ross is a brilliant man, but I just don't think that his handling of the biblical text is all that it would need to be in order to make old earth creationism a workable option. Again, I just don't think that old earth creationism is what the Bible actually teaches. It's just not what the divine author of Genesis, let alone the human author of Genesis, Moses, had in mind in writing those first couple chapters. I think it over-poeticizes, if that's a word, the use of yom, day, in those opening chapters. It wants to stretch it beyond the extent that the text should allow it to be stretched to. And I'm not saying it's a totally illegitimate view. I think it's close, just no cigar. So let's move on now to the third view that Christians hold about the Genesis creation narrative. The third view is what's often called the young earth creationist view. And this is the idea that there were seven literal 24-hour days, and you pretty much take Genesis 1 and 2 at face value. So God, on the first day, said, let there be light. He separated light from darkness. He separated the waters below from the waters above. He separated the land from the seas, and then he filled each of those domains. So he put planets, stars, sun, and moon in the sky. Then he put fish and birds in the water in the sky, and then land animals. And then on the sixth day, the pinnacle of his creation was humanity, man and woman. So that is the view that I hold to. I do believe it was six literal 24-hour days, probably sometime within the last six to 7,000 years. Now, this is definitely the view that I think best agrees with Scripture. I also believe that it's what makes the best sense of the scientific data, too. Now, my primary concern is not the current science, but what the Bible says. But... The Bible is breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and creation, the natural world, is created by God and upheld by the powerful word of Jesus Christ, Hebrews 1, 3. So there's not going to be any actual disagreement between what is revealed by the natural world and what is revealed in God's word. Sometimes we think that there's a conflict, but when that happens, the problem ultimately lies with us. There's either a flaw in our understanding of God's word, or there's a flaw in our conclusions about the natural world. All right, but if the Bible teaches that the cosmos were created over six 24-hour days, about six or 7,000 years ago, then what do we think about those who don't believe this? What about the Christians who hold the first view, like theistic evolution, or the second view, old earth creationism? Let's talk about that next, and then let's get into some of the implications of rejecting the young earth creationist view. So, oh. like, what would you say to another Christian that believes, for example, in old earth? Mm. Does that have any negative connotations? Yeah, and that's a really good question. I'm glad you included that because I think it can. I don't think it must, but I think it can. I think that the more you study it, the more you need to really... I think that if you're going to look at the scriptures honestly, and you actually care about what the authors were intending to write, then I do think that there are negative implications of reinterpreting the Genesis story and trying to fit millions and potentially billions of years in there. I do think that there will be negative implications. 
And those negative implications are going to be the result of having an inconsistent hermeneutic or theory of interpretation or approach to interpreting the Bible. The reason why that is, is that Genesis 1 and 2 reads like history. It doesn't read like poetry. There are poetic elements to it. And I freely admit, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I don't even read Hebrew. I read Greek, but not Hebrew. But the research that I've done into the genre of Genesis 1 and 2 has convinced me that it was intended, is intended to be read as straightforward history. A good indicator of this is how the days are numbered they're, and they're given in sequential order and they're mentioned as including an evening and a morning. It sounds like you're describing one day after the next. One of my favorite scholars in this area is astrophysicist Dr. Jason Lyle. Dr. Lyle runs the Biblical Science Institute and he has an article called, What Does Day Mean?, where he writes that a straightforward reading of Genesis gives you the impression that we are talking about literal 24-hour days. Another good indicator of this is how the first two chapters of Genesis connect and flow right into the rest of the book. Now, certainly, if you take a chapter like chapter 12 or 15 and onward, those are meant to be taken as history, plainly. You can see that. Anyone can see that. But what if we start to rewind the tape and we go back to chapters six through nine, which talk about the flood? You know, you read those, they actually read like history too. doesn't sound like poetry. And there doesn't seem to be any literary or genre break between, say, chapters eight and nine or seven and eight or any chapters going right on back to chapters one and two. Chapters one and two read like history also. It's just that the things that those chapters say conflicts with some people's preconceived assumptions about when and how the world was created. But for Christians, you do run into problems when you interpret Genesis 1 and 2 as non-literal, as merely poetic, as though they aren't describing the actual historical sequence of events. You actually run into a dilemma. There's, there's two horns to this dilemma. On the one hand, if you apply that same hermeneutic that you use to interpret Genesis 1 and 2 to come up with millions, billions of years, if you apply that hermeneutic to other areas of scripture, you're going to end up misinterpreting those passages. You're going to reinterpret plain history as non-historical poetry. So, for example, did God really give the Decalogue to Moses, or is that non-historical poetry? Did Elijah really go up to heaven in a whirlwind? Did Jonah really get swallowed by the sea monster? Jesus said that he did in Matthew 12, 40, but maybe Jesus was speaking poetically too. Or maybe Jesus didn't even say those words. Maybe Matthew was speaking poetically. Uh-oh, did Jesus really even do all those miracles that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say that he did? Did Jesus really die for our sins? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? So there's one horn of the dilemma. You end up without a solid foundation for your faith because all of Scripture can now be reinterpreted. If Genesis 1 and 2, which really reads like actual history, needs to be reinterpreted as poetry, then the whole enchilada can be reinterpreted as poetry, and maybe it should be. Okay, so that's one horn of the dilemma. But now here's the other horn. 
if you use a different hermeneutic or interpretive method on other parts of scripture than you use for Genesis 1 and 2, well, then you're just really being arbitrary. You're not being faithful to the text. You're arbitrarily deciding to use one hermeneutic for Genesis 1 and 2 where the plain reading, and I believe the more accurate reading, is harder because of your preconceived notions, your presuppositions, and you're, you're just switching for the rest of scripture, that's arbitrary. Arbitrariness means that your whims and your feelings are driving your interpretation, not the word itself and the intention of the author. And this leads you to all kinds of troubling and false conclusions. James White has spoken about this on his podcast, this whole issue, this dilemma that we're talking about here. He's talked about it with regard to other controversial issues. I don't remember exactly if it was the issue of female pastors or homosexuality. It might have been both. But James White does a great job of explaining the importance of applying a consistent hermeneutic across the board. And that is the point that I try to drive home here in this AMA. The reason why is because what you want to do when you're approaching the Bible, you want to have a, a consistent interpretive method or hermeneutic. So if you have a completely different method for interpreting the first chapter and a half of Genesis than you do for interpreting uh, the Gospels where it talks about Jesus rising from the dead or Ephesians where it talks about how husbands and wives should interact with each other, you really you're not being consistent and it ends up being, being rather arbitrary well, I can't interpret Genesis this way because the scientific consensus, supposedly, I don't believe it is scientific, but the scientific mainstream consensus says this. So I have to go with that consensus. Uh, you end up being very arbitrary, and that's not how we should handle God's word. And I do think that if you play that out, you're going to end up taking the mainstream unbiblical position anytime that there's conflict between the world and God's word. And there's going to be conflict. There's always going to be conflict. Even if those points of conflict change over the years, there's always going to be conflict. So I do think we ought to have a consistent method for interpreting God's word. So there you have it. If you cut the brakes on your car in Genesis, you aren't going to have any brakes left later on in the scriptures when the cultural downward slope is accelerating you faster and faster, trying to get you to affirm all kinds of other ideas that are untrue and unbiblical. In other words, unless you start out with a consistent, true, biblical hermeneutic that reads scripture in the way that it was intended to be written, and intended to be read rather, you aren't going to later on be able to consistently say, you know what, I don't want to affirm all these other cultural uh, catastrophes and moral ridiculousness, but you've already given up the farm. You've already, you've already sold out your hermeneutic. If you cut the brakes in Genesis, you can't slow down or stop in Romans, in first Corinthians, et cetera, et cetera. You will not be able to say that those untrue and unbiblical ideas being taught by the culture are untrue and unbiblical because you've taken away your biblical ability to do so. At least 
your ability to do so consistently. Again, you can be arbitrary with it, but arbitrariness puts you in the driver's seat and your whims and your emotions in the driver's seat rather than God and his word. So you can't do it. You shouldn't do it. Now, here's the thing. Theistic evolutionists and old earth creationists, they're not going to say that they're cutting the brakes or that they're playing fast and loose with the scriptures. And many of them are, I believe, interpreting the Bible or attempting to do so in good faith. To the extent that they're doing that, I salute them. However, I have become convinced that what the Bible actually teaches, what it intends to teach, is not overly complicated. What, what Moses, the human author, and the divine author, the Holy Spirit, intended to communicate is that the world was created in six 24-hour day periods about 6,000 years ago. I could be wrong about this, but I don't think that I am. And I will happily stand by my position until someone can show me where I'm wrong, but first and foremost, you'll have to show me from God's word. So now you know, the three views of creation that most Christians hold are one, theistic evolution or evolutionary creationism, two, old earth creationism, and three, young earth creationism. Now, before you stop me and you say, wait, 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 what about intelligent design? Let me just say that intelligent design or ID, if you're familiar with it, you know it's not really a view of the age of the earth or the length of the creation week. You can be an ID adherent and be an old earth creationist or young earth creationist or probably several things in between. ID stops short of making those claims. It's focused on the fact that creation itself had a creator, an intelligent designer. Now, I actually view ID personally. I like ID, but I view it as young earth creationism light. It's young earth creationism with its pant legs rolled up so it doesn't get them wet as it wades across the river of these issues. So you heard me explain what's wrong with so-called evolutionary creationism, which I believe makes a mess of scripture and doesn't agree with the science. You heard me talk about why old earth creationism gets close but no cigar, and that's because although it has a lot going for it, I think it just doesn't accurately reflect what the Bible teaches. And you heard me explain why I am a young earth creationist. It's because I believe that this view accurately reflects the biblical teaching and as a bonus, it agrees with the science too. So finally, we also talked about the negative implications of rejecting a young earth view. On the one hand, it kicks the door open wide for all kinds of false interpretations of the rest of scripture. And on the other hand, if you go back to a consistent, correct biblical hermeneutic for the rest of scripture after you leave Genesis 1 and 2, that makes you just arbitrary and arbitrariness is no way to handle God's word. So I hope that you found this entertaining and educational. If you like the stuff that the Think Institute is putting out, then thank you. Thank you for listening, for reading, participating, however it is that you're interacting with our materials. Thank you. As you might know, my wife, Elisa, and I work for Crew. We're a missionary family. Crew is formally called Campus Crusade for Christ. You probably know that. And as missionaries for Crew, part of our responsibility 
is to raise the necessary financial support to cover our salary and our ministry expenses. So we have a broad group of people who are involved with this, and we call them our ministry partners. A few ministry partners recently have had to discontinue their support. So we're asking you, the listener of this podcast, to consider joining our team. If you'd like to know more about how to partner with us and keep this podcast playing every week, please go to give.crucrew.org slash 101-8841. Again, that's give.cru.org slash 101-8841. I'll put that link in the show notes as well. And on that site, there's also a link to our website where if you want to get in touch, you have more questions, you can do that. We've been having more and more listeners join our ministry partner team lately, and there is definitely still room on that team for you. So please do consider it if you enjoy the work we're doing. And I just want to thank you in advance. It really, really does help. It means a lot. And it allows us to keep putting out new podcast episodes, creating new tools, and uh, sending you the emails, all the stuff that you need to help you become the worldview leader that your family and church need. So thank you. Seriously. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Worldview Legacy. Thank you to Ferry Pengu for hosting the AMA on Discord. This episode was produced by yours truly, Joel Sedeckes, and is a production of the Think Institute.